0: Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik.
1: look like we're crazy when we're just trying to save some children, pisses me off.
0: Our next guest is Stephanie Hagerty. She is a journalist with the BBC. Uh, since 2018, she has been the BBC's population correspondent, covering global and demographic changes. Uh, she has also reported on cultural and economic issues in Nigeria. And most notably was the journalist who broke the story of the ransom paid for the Chibok Girls, uh, for which she won multiple uh, awards, including the Foreign Press Association Award. Uh, Stephanie, welcome to In Politics. Thanks for having me. So in addition to your impressive experience as a journalist and the the large number of diverse stories you've covered, you've also reported on QAnon for several years uh, and as the topic of our discussion for this episode. Uh, So I want to start for listeners who might not be aware of it. How would you define QAnon, especially you in terms of uh, as uh, from your journalistic perspective?
1: Um. Well, it's a few different things. It's a conspiracy theory. No, it's a set of conspiracy theories, a very wide and rambling set of conspiracy theories that are all brought together under one kind of big hat. Um, I think it's also a political movement, although maybe a slightly fractured one. Um, And it's uh, becoming an ideology and it's becoming a pretty important influence in the right wing of American politics.
0: There's a lot wrong with QAnon. And as you said, you used the term rambling, right? Um, and I like that a lot, uh, including like the fundamental lack of basic evidence. Um, but I, I think it's its fundamental logic is, is flawed. And one thing that I've always pondered is, If we were to assume QAnon was accurate, right, that Trump and the right is waging some sort of war against Satan worshiping pedophiles who control the world. I always ask myself, if we were to assume that true, why would Trump work through some anonymous individual, supposedly within government, who would post in the most obscure and dark, really, corners of the web? Why not simply... Would the him he as, as president as, as president Trump, why wouldn't he simply declare his war openly to make it a public statement that that never I could I never mean, get myself past that? There's so many things
1: that I can't get myself past though. If you're getting into the whys, you know, it's it's just a fool's game. There's so many illogical, um explanations for why so yeah you explain the basis of the conspiracy theory but even the basis of the conspiracy theory is so complicated i mean at its root it is that the democrats are corrupt and they're part of a global elite that is doing terrible nefarious things and one of the worst things that they're doing is the worst thing that anyone could come up with any human being doing to another human being which is child sex abuse right so I mean, it's even hard to get down to a nugget of what this conspiracy theory is. It's just that there is a really deep evil that we're all oblivious to, except this special core of people who have figured it all out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many illogical strands to it. So it's like, why is Trump the savior? Well, I don't know. It makes no sense to me. But also, why is Ellen, you know, one of the main uh, enemies, number one? I don't know. It makes no sense to me. Uh, There's so many parts of it that make no sense. And like to try and prescribe logic to it is definitely, you're fighting a losing battle there.
0: One of uh, Q's early drops, uh, I I think he said that uh, it was, and I remember this is kind of a quote, but uh, disinformation is sometimes necessary. I think that was literally a drop, which implies that Q, him or her, or for assuming it was the uh, uh, Ron Watkins, Um, you know, whoever it is, right? But it implied that Q might be lying to his his own followers, yet people Yeah, I mean,
1: do we have to get back to basics here and explain who Q is or what that that all is? Do you think people um, know? Let's
0: let's do it. How would you describe Q and who supposedly Q is?
1: Okay, so this all started on the internet around the end of um, 2017, when someone started posting saying that they're- Picking bits out of the Podesta papers, right, and saying that the Democrats were conspiring to there was this child sex ring run by the Democrats that became Pizzagate because they said it was happening, that HQ was under a pizza restaurant in Washington. Pizzagate then got taken on by someone or a group of people, maybe, and um, who started posting on 4chan saying that they had high level security clearance in the us government called q clearance so they were posting as q uh, that was their you know the, the anonymous name they gave themselves um and that was that person or that group of people started posting these messages online they became known as q drops um and there's been thousands of these over the years and There are various theories, but one of the main theories is that at the beginning, it was a group of people and then it got taken over by uh, one person or uh, two people who are related to each other. Um, uh, No one has proven this, but the overriding theory is that it's this guy called Ron Watkins, who basically managed 8chan, which is the message board where this uh, landed and where these posts were being posted, uh, and that it may have been him and his dad, Jim Watkins, who is this really interesting but kooky, strange character. Um, who, who And they ran that message board. And the message board is overwhelmingly just porn. Um, porn
0: and Q. You know, the, what was it, the Pastel Movement or whatever it's called? I know some scholars have called it where... Basically, the transition from QAnon ideas and conspiracies shifted to more mainstream. And I I think that scholars use the term pastel uh, in the sense that it's suburban housewives in the United States started gravitating towards it. And they. Yeah, that happened.
1: happened. I mean, suburban housewives um, and everyone else. I mean, that's the thing about the QAnon community, right? It's just this great mix of people, fascinating mix of people. I don't know if great is the right word but um uh the suburban housewives weren't going into these these obscure message boards it was filtering down to them mostly through facebook really at the time um, and other more mainstream social media networks that weren't aware what was happening and certainly weren't monitoring it or, or policing it um but also i mean they weren't breaking the guidelines conspiracy theories don't generally break the guidelines of these uh social media companies so it was allowed to exist for years and it just snowballs and people uh attach themselves to it in mo for the most part during the pandemic when there was such a huge amount of uncertainty distrust of global elites of our individual governments of science of scientists Uh, and that is essentially what QAnon was is is a conspiracy theory that told us to distrust the authorities because the authorities are corrupt and they're abusing children. So, yeah, it just kind of snowballed into this huge movement, I guess, phenomenon over the course of the pandemic, especially in the first six months or so.
0: Your experience as a journalist, over the years, right, you've met a large number of QAnon adherents uh, and believers. And I'm really curious, how would you describe these individuals I mean they they believe in wild conspiracies but are they they true truly raving extremists or simply ordinary people who just kind of got caught up in this um, conspiracy network if you will
1: yeah I think um I think it could be anyone really I, I think there for the, of the people that I've spoken to and met um I certainly got the sense that they there was they were at a moment of maybe insecurity when they got um, wrapped up in all this because it has a very obsessive nature, right? And most people aren't that obsessive um, and they need to have a lot of time on their hands. So usually or often it was a pattern of say, someone maybe lost their job or maybe they weren't getting as work, much work as before. So that kind of chimes in with why it happened during the, the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, you need a lot of time to be looking at this stuff like so what it is often is there's videos on youtube sorry i mentioned facebook earlier but youtube was also a big recruiting tool um people would watch hours of videos of people other people explaining the q drops and what was in them and why the conspiracy was real and all the different clues that they had seen in real life and then other people just rabbiting this and and rabbiting it and it kind of just spirals on and on. And you need time to consume this stuff. So there's definitely people who'd found themselves in a moment in their life where they were lacking something, often maybe just work or other human relationships. Um, and, and they got drawn in and it filled some sort of hole that they had in their life at that time. Um, but not everyone, you know? I mean, some one of, someone who I haven't kept in touch with over the years he was always a conspiracy theorist, you know, he was someone who smoked a lot of weed in college and got sucked into the 9-11 conspiracy or every other conspiracy that, that theory that has um, existed over the years. So he was kind of a prime candidate for this. He believes already that the world is really corrupt and that there's a kind of few people at the middle pulling the strings. So this just chimes in with his vision of the world. Um, and then and and he's one of the few people actually who I found was able to kind of live a normal life while not not let it take over so much and able to maintain healthy relationships, whereas for a lot of people and I've spoken to family members as well who just feel like their relative is lost now because they become so obsessed with this that they can't have a normal conversation. They can't speak to anyone who doesn't believe it They're, It's evangelical, right? Because you think if you don't convert other people to believe in the conspiracy, to believe that in the corruption and believe that this is all happening, that they're not going to be saved almost, right? Like it's going to end in a war between the people who believe and the people who don't and the people who don't believe aren't going to be saved. So, that, for a lot of people, it has been toxic and it's been destructive, especially to family relationships and friendships. Um, and I think, yeah, in terms of people who can kind of live their life normally, I they seem to be in the minority, unless they're surrounded in their family and friend circle and work circle with other believers.
0: Now... Talking about these individuals, I, I understand that you've been followed a few of these individuals over years, or at least a couple of them are followed up with a few of them. How have you found that their lives have changed over this, this time period? And, and how has it affected aspects of their life, be it um, their employment, professions, uh, education, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier family life? Uh, how has that um, kind of impacted some of these individuals that you followed up with?
1: So one thing I didn't say earlier is that the the overwhelming majority were probably Republican or that leaning before and tend to be older. But it's not exclusive in any way. You know, there's plenty of younger people. There's a really interesting cohort of former Bernie types who, you know, are into alternative therapy and crystals and all of that and manifesting your destiny. And, um at the beginning of the pandemic, adopted this because it, it fit in with their anti-science. What they would see as science's control of our health, right? So that, that was a weird subgroup that didn't, didn't make sense to me at first, but then once you delve into it, it starts making sense. I think for those people who maybe existed in a kind of lefty sphere, is very problematic because people around them profoundly disagree and it causes a lot of tension and conflict. I think for people who are kind of in a Republican world anyway. Most people in their town are Trump supporters, in their work, in their family. It isn't as prob- problematic um, because they aren't just getting into arguments all the time about their theories. So I think it's a definitely a pretty broad spectrum in terms of how, how damaging it can be on life and work and relationships.
0: Well, then let me ask this. Following and porting on QAnon over the years, have you found that it's, has it changed, if at all, uh, over the past few years that you've covered it?
1: Yeah, I think it has changed a lot. It's, um, I mean, in the beginning, it was kind of very much focused on the child sex trafficking. Uh, then it became, the, the real focus became um the pandemic and all the supposed lies that authorities were were telling us. And it was anti-lockdown. And then as vaccines came out, it became anti-vax movement, essentially. And it drew in uh, support from people who were anti-vax before coronavirus. Uh, And then uh, towards the end of 2020, it became all about the election and all about um, the lie that the election was was stolen. And now it's very amorphous, I think. You know, it's, it definitely still exists and it's definitely still a kind of potential recruiting force for Trump and some of politicians that are trying to emulate the Trump model. But I'd, whether it exists as much as a kind of cohesive force, I'm not sure. It's done its damage though. So it almost doesn't matter where it is now. It's created so much distrust in science, in in the authorities, in democracy, in elections, that whether it's a powerful force that will move forward is almost irrelevant. Its it's toxic effect has been felt so much.
0: You know, speaking to that point, uh, I know scholars will say that um, conspiracy theories aren't like a hypodermic needle. Like you can't inject somebody with it and they suddenly believe it. Um, there's uh, Joseph Yuzinski, uh, who we interviewed. Uh, he talks about the uh, you know the story that you know. Let's say you went to a dinner party and you sat next to someone who, who is let's say a Holocaust denier. You wouldn't then just being exposed as individual automatically suddenly deny. Uh, the Holocaust, right? You yourself wouldn't just simply turn into it. And he uses that to kind of speak to, you know, the debate we're having now about content moderation and, you know, Elon Musk taking over Twitter, et cetera, uh, and the implications. Um, and he says, that, you know, it's it's not going to have any impact because people aren't just simply exposed to a conspiracy theory and in their worldviews automatically change, right? You and I, for example, right, we've studied QAnon and we are not adherents. Um, there's pre-existing traits or qualities. But what I think is important, and I, I pinned him on this, is that he does acknowledge that it can change behaviors. So we might not necessarily believe, let's say, the election was stolen. However, we're more likely to accept, let's say, uh, draconian laws in terms of uh, voting restrictions, right? Or um, the we might not believe that COVID is a hoax, We're less likely to support, uh, be supportive of science and medicine and advancements uh, in that regard. Mm -hmm. I I
1: think think there's a cumulative effect um, where social media companies um, do have an obligation to look at uh, and not censor content, but to look at what they are forcing people to to watch, you know, Um, because there is a cumulative impact. If you have a niggling suspicion that, you know, there's something, this pandemic is not right you know we're all locked up that's super weird why would they do that to us um and then you're exposed again and again to these ideas that they're lying to you they're lying to you they're lying to you um that is going to have an impact you know um it's not that you just need to see that that you just see that post once and often with facebook people were seeing it over and over again and from other people that they trust
0: um, and and to that point, uh, one thing that always I, I find interesting is people will say, "Oh well, Twitter or social media is is censoring or taking away a freedom of expression, and right, a freedom of speech." And the counter argument, very clearly, is no. Twitter and Facebook are not the government, right? It's impossible to they're, they're they can you've agreed to the terms of services, so it's impossible for them to restrict freedom of speech because they're not a government. And but I think
1: there is also a middle ground between removing someone's account and promoting someone's account really heavily, right? And the, there's been so much discussion of this, but the algorithms were built to promote the kind of content that's inflammatory, you know, and that makes people angry. And uh, why we we need to tackle that, right? Tackle the idea that the, these accounts, these ideas can exist and they should be allowed to exist in a democracy, but they don't need to be promoted heavily by an algorithm that was built to make someone money.
0: And, and apparently we're finding that out now about Facebook and the algorithms is the, the those, uh, and I haven't looked at it too carefully, but I, I saw uh, a piece recently uh, that those posts that generated the most anger, not likes, but anger and animosity, yeah. the dislikes, if you will, were the ones that actually were promoted. Um, yeah.
1: And, you know, It's always going to be the most extreme stuff that creates anger. And often the most extreme stuff is lies or simplifications of complicated truths.
0: In your reporting, is there one aspect of QAnon, either the conspiracy theories or the people that you've met, that has really stood out to you, or stated differently, is there something that stands out to you the most when you reflect upon all the coverage and reporting that you've done on QAnon?
1: Well, I liked everyone that I met and everyone that I spoke to. There were there was, I'm thinking mainly of documentary that I put out in January and and the people I spoke to in that, and I was really fond of all of them, and they were always really kind and open and honest with me and trusting and there were other people that weren't right that they said no you're mainstream media um I'm not going to trust you with my story so maybe there's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there the people that I ended up staying in touch with were the people were were not your average QAnon person because most of them would just refuse to speak to me as a representative of the BBC but when I went to into that documentary i didn't want to have i wanted to avoid what we've seen in a lot of the reporting which is just this atmosphere of kind of conflict and disagreement right that i i wanted to come to it not taking offense that they distrusted me or not kind of taking it personally that they believe that my entire existence as a journalist is a scam um so i was trying to Step back a bit and try not to get emotional about it, you know, because it, it it can be quite. Um, the, people can get quite personal when they they feel affronted, they feel their beliefs are being affronted, and then they can just kick it straight back at you. Um, so I was definitely trying to make my interaction with them a conversation and not a debate, because it's not my position as a journalist to debate them anyway. It's not like I'm coming; I'm not supposed to be coming from the other side. Um, but when you've got a lie and truth, it's hard not to, but to see it as sight. So, but the people that spoke to me for that documentary, for the most part, were really um, open and accommodating and, and handed themselves over to the process. And it, it made me realize it doesn't have to be so confrontational, you know, it doesn't always have to be left versus right or Q versus believer versus non-believer. Or Trumps for, supporter versus trump opposition you know you can try and find middle ground but at the same time i was able to walk away and i can understand if it's your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife you know that that's much more difficult but there is an oppositional kind of atmosphere in american politics right now that i think is unhealthy and dangerous and it's coming from both sides
0: yeah that's interesting that you you noted the the Degree of commonality, at least. And I know, um, speaking with experts who work on essentially um, deprogramming um, those who believe in conspiracy theories or cults and other Um, kind of phenomena, um, that one of the best approaches is not to counter with facts or counter with evidence or to engage in debate, but it's actually to find empathy, common ground, or mutual understanding. Because both sides, the left and the right, are very concerned about misinformation or disinformation. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the the starting, you know, ground level of creating that conversation that people can build upon. Um, What... What do you foresee as the future of QAnon or what do you foresee for some of these uh, adherents and believers that uh, you've met uh, over the years?
1: I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, I know the movement is, is uh, there's something else happening right now. And you know, the whole um, what's happening in school boards where um, people are are trying to discredit the educational system. I think that's certainly an offshoot of it. That's, gained huge momentum um in terms of the individual it, it depends some of them may move on you know they I, I i can see some of the people i've spoken to just either moving on to another conspiracy theory or just realizing ah this is lost team um and then what i worry about though more than anything is that it can be some sort of rallying, rallying force again in the way that it was on January 6th, because it's, it's so divisive. You know, the language is, is about war. The language is about fighting the evil cabal and defeating them and saving the world. And if you really believe that the lengths that you're going to go, I, I just wonder what lengths you're going to go to um, to achieve it. And clearly there were people on January 6th who were willing to go to all sorts of illegal lengths. Um, I don't, what impact it'll have in the next election is, we'll see, but that's also quite worrying. you know, Trump didn't succeed this time in convincing enough people that it was rigged, but, maybe they will next time. So it's two things, that that democracy is really undermined by this lack of trust and that people will be driven out of a sense of frustration as well because the movement is disintegrating um, to to take some sort of action and that action might be violent.
0: Yeah, I I say terrorism quite a bit and when people feel frustrated with the trajectory of their organization or movement, oftentimes they'll break off into a terrorist organization. There's plenty of examples in both Europe and the United States where, you know, there's a relatively peaceful, um, nonviolent uh, movement, either on the left or the right. Um, individuals associated with that movement get very frustrated with the lack of results and activity, uh, and then they'll, they'll transition to violence.
1: I think that that is definitely really worrying. And if you look at the numbers of people that believe in this, you know, it's millions. So even if a small fraction of them, do end up um, taking the worst possible path they could and doing something violent, um, it could be a significant number, of, significant number of people.
0: You know, given all your experiences as a journalist and things that you reported on, is there anything else that you'd like um, our listeners of in uh to know or perhaps understand or something that you haven't have actually been able to publish in terms of your writing or documentaries or anything like that, anything that you'd, you think that uh, else that you'd like listeners to know about QAnon and its future?
1: I do think I sense a kind of, as an outsider, I sense a certain radicalness to the left as well in the States, you know, and and I think that that people should keep an eye on that. Not, not that it might form some sort of radical movement or anything, but just this op- op- oppos- oppositional kind of perspective that people have, like how, People got so exercised over masks in the States in a way that didn't happen here. You know, if someone wasn't wearing a mask, I never saw someone attack another person for not wearing a mask, you know? And it just seems to me that there's, there's a lot of anger on both sides and the people need to really be mindful of if someone's not wearing a mask, maybe they forgot it, or maybe they have an exemption, you know, Um, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. And, And there was a lot of that kind of rhetoric in, in the US, which I think is a little bit dangerous.
0: Well, thank you, Stephanie, uh, very much for your time. Uh, we greatly appreciate your, your insight and it's, it's, it's very refreshing uh, to hear from journalists who uh, play such an important role, um, but rarely do we get to hear your own thoughts and, and personal experiences uh, in your reporting. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Now, time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. So, I think one of the, the important things to realize about QAnon today, uh, as you know, Stephanie has followed up over the years with many of the people affiliated with the, you know, "quote unquote" conspiracy theory or movement or whatever you want to call it, is how much I think it's changed from this notion of of, you know, Satan worshiping pedophiles who supposedly control the world and, you know, Donald Trump is their savior seeking to, you know, f- combat these evildoers. And I think, you know, we've really seen a change in QAnon today where it's gravitated towards all these really diverse issues um, ranging from critical race theory to, you know, oddly enough, comb- you know, trying to you know, pick fights with uh, Disneyland, uh, which I think is absolutely absurd, um, you know, a- and I think recognizing how QAnon has formed a life of its own is important. That's important to recognize. That it's important for national security.
2: Yeah, I think, I think it's one of these spaces where right now it's kind of dead. Right. It's been attacked. It's been investigated. It's been doxxed. But somewhere in the QAnon world, there is right now some group of inevitably men, right. Who are, who are planning something more concrete, right. Uh, To, to stoke something like, you know, like pizza gate or whatever it is, or to actually, you know, be the ones carrying the guns themselves. And what happens is, is that emerges out of this, uh, out of this swamp right? That is QAnon and QAnon is so broad and so diverse and in whatever counts as a QAnon, you know, as part of the, the conspiracy, right? That's what also makes it successful is that it has, part of the problem is, is we try to, we try to put coherence on something that I think is not all that coherent and, and that's the success. And then this, you know, a year, two year, five years from now, somebody comes out and sort of adopts the QAnon brand and, and does something
0: yeah, I, I I can't help but think back to our conversation we had with Professor Yusinski, uh, And I encourage all our listeners to check out that previous episode on the uh, causes of uh, conspiracy theories. Um, and Joe had made the point that, you know, belief in conspiracy theories has remained relatively static. But when we pressed him on it, he did acknowledge and concede that it can, exposure to conspiracy theories can alter behavior. And, you know, when you have individuals who are exposed to some of these conspiracy theories and wild conspiracy theories, uh, it can alter their behavior from, you know, uh, whether or not the public health issues, whether or not to get vaccinated against COVID to more extreme behavior of, let's say, storming the Capitol on January 6th, uh, quite literally an insurrection against the United States government uh, to overthrow democracy in the United States. And and so QAnon for me, for that reason, is, is very... Uh, the lack of a better word, scary. Uh, I'm very, very concerned about um, the impact that conspiracy has,
2: conspiracy theories have on American society. This reminds me of the episode uh, with Kim Cutter of the control variable. Uh, and and her discussion about the work, the neuroscience, right behind uh, this this tribalism, right, or this sort of multiculturalism view out there, and it's to me, it's just it's the same, right? It maps back onto this idea that you were talking about, and the more we talk about this with our guests, the more I just uh, come down to this idea that there's this kind of theory of everything, right? This that that unites um, all of this and probably rests in this neuro theory. About what's going on in the you know whether it's in the the, the lizard brain uh, right or the front part of our brain um, out there that, that helps explain you know QAnon and uh, you know an anti-abortion uh, protests and and uh, you know Antifa that it's all tied up in this this really curious space in our brains that is is actually neurological our real physical structures. Um, which puts the question, you know, what we're doing out here in, the, in, in these fields of sociology, right? We're, we're not looking at the physical structures. We're looking at, at you know, philosophy and, and thought and economics. Um, and in the end, it may just be how we're wired. Well,
0: we'll leave it at a theory of everything. Uh, excellent, Matt. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Impolitik. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes. And please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time.